Hey, 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 welcome to the 14th episode of Two Writers Sling and Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, former ESPN columnist, author of a handful of New York Times bestsellers, and a columnist for The Athletic. The music you're listening to is Croissant Master by MC White Owl. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from journalism to songwriting to screenwriting to novels to romance to comics to anything you can think of. And today's guest is ESPN's Wright Thompson, who, to me, is the finest long-form writer in America right now. And I'm not just talking sports. I'm talking across all genres. His ability to delve into a topic is unparalleled. It's unique. It's breathtaking. And honestly, it makes me jealous. So today, we'll try and figure out how the mind of Wright Thompson works, or at least how the pen of Wright Thompson works, right now on Two Writers, Sling and Yang. All right, so Wright, first of all, um, I want to thank you for, you are the, uh, you are the 14th guest on Two Writers, Slinging Yang, so that's, uh, that's an honor. I know, I, I know when you enter journalism, one of your dreams was to one day end up on a, uh, on a podcast of such, so mazel tov to you. Well, there you go. I just glad I'm not 13. Yeah, that would have been that would have been awful. Um, you are 14. Yeah, and um, I actually want to jump right in here. Um, I am a uh, I would call myself a tortured and battered writer. In that, when I'm writing a long piece, when I'm writing anything in excess of 2,000 words, um, I beat the shit out of myself. I truly do. I think every word I write sucks. I write something, I delete it. I write something else, I delete it. I end up waiting till I have five hours left of my deadline at three in the morning after I've watched every Rocky fight ever. And then I put something down and I'm convinced it sucks. And then usually my editor say, oh, it's really good. And I'm like, really? Um, are, you a, are, are you similar in any way or totally and completely different? Huh. I mean, I'm both similar and different. I mean, I, I definitely hate everything. And up until a moment, though, there is this thing when it's almost a physical reaction where you're like, Oh, this is pretty good. Uh, I am a relentless rewriter and cutter, which is funny considering how long some of these stories are. But like, I mean, I, I just I love to just strip them down to when if you start pulling out literally sentences after that, the thing starts to fall apart. Like that's my favorite when you can strip it down to, you know, we've I love it when you know we had that thirty or forty thousand word story about Katrina a couple of years ago. And I loved it because after my editor and I were finished with it, I was like, man, this is 40,000 words and th there's no fat. I mean, none. And like, that was like, I don't know, like you sort of had to stand up and walk around the room after that. So like, I, I've, it's a miserable, miserable process full of self-loathing and me being utterly convinced that this is, well, that's it. I've forgotten how to do it. Right. It's been a really good run. And, uh, and, you know, just having to sort of slog through that. So when you when your story ultimately runs, when the story actually goes up, uh, do you read it and do you take satisfaction in it? No, I don't care. You don't. I mean, the joy is in the doing of it. I mean, honestly, like my least favorite thing in the world is the seventy two hours after it runs because you got to go on TV and promote it and do all this stuff. And like, I don't. I've already moved on to the ne to the next thing, right? Because you know, there's that lag time between. The best day for me is the day it closes. Right. And so by the time it comes out 
four, five, six, seven, eight days later, I've, it's already so ancient history to me that it, uh, no, I, I don't, I, I don't really care about that. I like the doing of it. Interesting. So do you read your own writing? Like, will you, will you actually go, it's up. Will you go look at it? Will you look at the layout? Will you look at the story? Will you read the story or no? I, I, I always read the story at least once just to make sure that nothing got fucked up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, uh, you know, just cause you have to transfer it from the Mac system to the online, to the digital system. And so sometimes display copy gets lost. Right. You know, so if like you have that, the designers do some weird, big fat first paragraph, sometimes that won't be there. And so I just like to double check it. But once that's done, no, I don't, I don't go back and read them. Interesting. Um, I want your, your stories are very long, which I love. And, um, I feel like I, uh, I was doing a lot of writing for Bleacher Report and this is not a criticism of Bleacher Report because they do what they do and you do what you do. But, you know, I was writing stories that were in the nine, 10, 8,000 word length for a while. And after a while, uh, they said to me, we really want stories to be around 3,000 words. And I feel like you're one of the few sports writers right now who's not only allowed, but expected to hit that sort of 10,000, 11, 12, um, word count. Is that, is that, is that part of your quote unquote deal? Do you know what I mean? Are you, are, no. is that expected of you? I mean, I, I think that sort of big stories are expected, but I don't think big means length. I mean, I, the story that's out, I have a story that's out today. Uh, I mean, I, I just did sports center and then I'm doing this, uh, talking about the story about the Cleveland Indian streak is 4,000 words and it's tight. Right. And so I don't, you know, I, I don't, I think there there are three thousand word stories that read too long, and there are twelve thousand word stories that people breeze through. I mean, we, I've had really long stories, and I mean, some of this stuff. I, I don't know whether this stuff is proprietary information or not, so I don't want to give details because I don't want to get a phone call from ESPN. <laughs> but like, like audience engagement on the Tiger Woods story was insane. Right. I mean, people stuck with it. So I think if somewhere feels like they're running a bunch of 8,000 word stories that people aren't reading. It's because they're running a bunch of shitty 8,000 word stories. Right. And so I usually think that that's the difference. Like long form has sort of fetishized length when really what I think, you know, what you and I probably called a bonus piece or a magazine story or what a newspaper writer might've called a takeout is really, there is no length. It is a sort of style of reporting and an expectation of intellectual and sort of psychic depth that, that's what defines it, not the fact that it just goes on and on and on and on. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I think the same thing, actually, often. I hate I, long form, just for that reason. And I don't care. It just it doesn't offend me. or I don't spend any time about it, actually, thinking about it, because it's just a name people use, and there have been a thousand names and will be a thousand more. But it's like, you know, the idea that because something is long, it's good, and because it's short, it's bad, I think it's dumb. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, I wonder if you, um, I don't know how you feel about this. I, uh, so I teach journalism and, uh, one phrase I never use. And I first learned it when I was at the Tennessee and I was a young writer and I would hear all the time, you need a nut graph. You need a graph telling the reader what the story is about. And I'd be like, why the fuck do I need a paragraph to tell the reader what the story is about? The story is about what it's about. Um, and when I got, when I showed, I teach at Chapman university and a bunch of kids were like, well, what about the nut graph? And I was like, fuck the nut graph. But I, how do you feel about the nut graph? Well, I mean, a nut graph in an AP story is very different than a contextual area or the top of a second section in a magazine story, first of all. You know what I mean? Of course. But like, so, I mean, like, Todd's Ali story had had no kind of nut graph whatsoever, and it worked. 
I mean, I've done stories that did, and I've done ones that need it. I mean, I almost look at it like it's like there's the piv- sometimes you need the pivot point upon which stuff bounces, or you have to have a big enough celestial body in there to exert gravitational pull on all the other things. So sometimes mm-hmm. I think if you you need to hammer something into the wall high in the story because it. It, it makes the rest, it gives the rest of the stuff something to revolve around. And so things that might seem on their own to be disparate or unrelated start talking to each other in really interesting ways. So sometimes I think you really do need something high whose sole purpose is to, you know, 5,000 words later, it allows things to talk to each other in an interesting way. Right. I don't disagree with that. I, I remember literally I'd be in Nashville and I write a story and they'd say, you need the nut graph. And they take, you know, like no interest in the tone, the texture, where you're going with it. Third, between second and third paragraphs. We need to insert a paragraph telling the reader what it's about. You could be writing about the best omelet in Nashville. You could be writing about a right-handed pitcher for the, we need that paragraph. So, and it used to, it turned me more off to the idea of a nut graph than anything in my career. You know, well, yeah, a bad news. Nothing is better than a good newspaper editor and nothing is worse than a bad one. Yeah. I mean, the worst magazine editor is still a pretty good editor. Do you right. know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like, like a great newspaper editor it remains the finest thing I've ever come across. And boy, a bad one sucks. Yeah, I agree with you. And there are a lot of bad ones. And there are some good ones, but there are a lot of bad ones. I mean, my guy in Kansas City, Mike Fannin, was great. Right. Well, how would you define what makes a great newspaper editor? Uh, well, I mean, it's a common one. It's the things they know to do with the words Two, It's the ability to recognize something in you that maybe even you don't realize and put you in a position to use. It is knowing how much rope to give you, but knowing when to sort of pull you back. So you don't look stupid. Mm-hmm. It is knowing the kind of stories that you ex- do well and the kind that you don't and making sure you do some of the ones that you don't do well so you don't become a one-trick pony, but also do enough of the other ones so that you succeed. I mean, it's all, I mean, it's like Tito Francona. You know what I mean? It's all psyche management. Right. Interesting. Um, And what makes a bad, what do you consider bad? What makes a bad editor in your mind? Somebody who thinks they're rules. Yeah. Or just this is how this is done. That's the dumbest thing. That's ridiculous. There's no way to do it. Right. You know, there are mistakes that have been made over 100 years that people have learned from, and you should listen to the sort of grizzled old hands in the newsroom because they can save you a lot of heartache. But the idea that like there, this is a rule, you know, that that's just dumb to me. My fa- you know, I feel like, you know, you're in bad company when someone says you can't start a sentence with blank. Oh yeah. I can, you know what I mean? Or like, can't use first person. Can't use second person. Right. Like I'm not nearly a good enough writer to cut off a third of the English language. You know what I mean? Right, like I exactly. need every day. I need every damn word I can get. Right. That's funny. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. Um, one, of your, one of my favorite stories you wrote, and I'm going to take you back a little bit, not too long, is uh, Michael Jordan has not left the building. And you wrote in 2013, right about the time Michael Jordan was turning 50. And um, I was fascinated by the story, fascinated, because you really delved into aging. And the, and the story really, in a way, I thought, was sort of about this idea of this icon and his own mortality. Um, and I had a lot of questions about it. Um, yeah. Number one, how did you even get the access? I mean, this is a notoriously guarded guy, a guy who doesn't give that much. How'd you get the access? Uh, I started asking, I, I don't want to make this up, but 14, 15 months before his birthday. Yeah. And so I, I started on him, and uh, I have that email somewhere. I mean, I, uh, 
my intro email. It's I've read this. I've read that New Yorker story. Uh, uh, Paul McCartney when I'm 64 mm-hmm. and I just was like Paul McCartney's 64 if you're my mother's age that must make you feel ancient right. you know and I started thinking Michael Jordan's 50 that's how that's that's a similar touchstone for my generation like what happened to the time and what does the losing of the time do to you and sort of the friction of it you know like there's that great uh, I don't I think Luke wrote it. There's a great Esquire story about Chuck Berry a couple of years ago that was all about friction. And I was just like, oh my God, this is genius. But it was like, I mean, that was the idea is like the friction and cost of time and sort of what, do you, you know, what do you do when you used to be Michael Jordan? Right. But did he want, like, why would Michael Jordan, I mean, he obviously openly did and did very well. Why would he want to discuss that topic? I have no idea. I mean, my guess is that he is media savvy enough to know that him turning 50 is going to get done. And if you are remotely sensitive about aging, that's something you probably want to be involved in. Right. I don't I have no idea. Yeah, it's so interesting. I thought this story. So some of the things you did really well, there's something you wrote that uh, it really, so I'm 45 and I, I read that story and I feel, I actually feel the pain of getting there and you want, you do wonder where the age goes, where the years go. And you wrote, um, aging means losing things and not just eyesight and flexibility. It means watching the accomplishments of your youth be diminished, maybe in your own eyes through perspective, maybe in the eyes of others through cultural amnesia. Most people live anonymous lives. And when they grow old and die, any record of their existence is blown away. Uh, they're forgotten some more slowly than others, but eventually it happens to virtually everyone. Um, you're a relatively young guy. I mean, you're, you turned 40 last year. Uh, you've been writing for a while. Like this sound, this might sound kind of dumb, but where do you even get the perspective to think that much about aging to then sort of, uh, express it in a story as a narrator? Well, you know, one, uh, it sounds dumb. I'm sort of an old soul, I think. And then I, I don't, I mean, I feel like anybody who was ambitious in their career, and who makes it to some sort of level where they imagined they wouldn't starts to wonder who's going to come take it away. Do you know what I mean? I do. And like, I mean, you know, you write these incredibly best selling sort of bombshell books, just one after another, but you will never, ever be that young, bad motherfucker with a sports illustrated media pass going in a locker room. That right. guy's dead. Right. You know? And like, so, I mean, you, you, you know, if you work really, really hard at something, I think it makes you aware of the cost of it and how much you've come to define yourself by it and what it might be like without it. That's really interesting. Do you struggle with that yourself? Like, do you, do you long to be the badass with the, with the media badge you were at 24? I, that's interesting. Not that per se, but I, uh, I like having, unlimited reservoirs of injury of of uh energy with which to pursue something and like i like showing up and you know i love it when i show up and there's someone from sports illustrated there it's my favorite thing in the world wait why is that because it's awesome because we now have to go do it there's no reputation there's no nothing there's just you just have to do it now right you know and that's fun because there's you know you know this very very well you've written a thousand great stories and 
none of them buy you anything the next time you get on an airplane. Yeah, that is true. Which I like. Right. But do you, um, I wonder, do you write it like, so I read the Jordan. I'm going to be totally honest. I read the Jordan story. I think my first emotion as a writer is, fuck. You know, it's like, fuck, that's really good. You know, and then my second emotion is, well, fuck it. My next story, I'm going to do bet. You know, like. Oh, I do that constantly. You do. You write out of jealousy. Not jealousy, but, you know, it's very interesting. And this is like straight from my father. My dad was always and he was always competitive but very happy for other people's successes it wasn't a zero-sum thing right. if you have a great cover story in sports illustrated next month or anywhere that that raises the bar but it, it's not my your success isn't my failure right and so you know like i love it i mean like like when that tom Gino ali story ran i was like okay that's the bar you know right. and like that, to me, that's fun. And like, there's something, I, I, my favorite thing in the world is a group of friends who were all at a similar level of something, take, doing the very, very best they can every time out, totally engaged in competition with each other. I love that. I love how that feels. Right. And if someone writes, a, if, you're, if you are writing, so let's say you're doing, a, you do this Cleveland Indian story and uh, Tom Verducci is there. And you open up SI and he did a better story than you. You just factually, you've like, I had this happen recently. I did a uh, Sam Darnold profile for Bleacher Report and Lee Jenkins came out with one in SI like a day later. And I was like, his story was better. Like factually his story, he wrote a better story than I did. Oh yeah. I'm very like, oh yeah. I mean, and if I don't believe me, my friends will. And how do you feel? But how do you, do you, are you like, okay, he wrote a better story than me. Are you like, no, I want, no, I want to make, if I did the very best I could, I'm good with it. Right. But if I just sort of lollygag around the infield and lollygag around, that would really, really bother me, which is why I sort of, there's no difference to me between 4,000 words on the Cleveland Indians and 12,000 words on Tiger Woods, literally. I mean, there's zero difference of importance and energy spent and stress and work ethic. Like, I don't, the only story that exists is the next one. I mean, really, like, that's not just some shit I'm saying. To, like, that's absolutely true. Right. Interesting. How many uh, how many stories do you write a year? Would you say on average? Uh, I mean, sometimes four, sometimes eight, usually six. And do you love hate your job, or do you just love your job? I just love it. Yeah, it's really. Good. I really like it. I really like it. Like, you know, we have the same agent. I think you have David Black. Yeah, yeah. So David and I, are, David, we're very close to David. So I think sometimes I think that David is perpetually annoyed at me that I'm not doing books or turning things down. And like, honestly, I really like these stories. I'm not nearly as good enough, good enough at them as I want to be. I, you know, anyway, I'm just not, I don't feel done yet. Like, I'm, you know, if I ever get bored, then it's time to do something else. But I'm not that. Interesting. You, so what do you, what do you consider the holes in your game? Like you say, you're, you're not nearly good enough. And I read your stuff and I think, man, this guy's great. Like, what do you feel like are the holes in your game? I couldn't have written Falling Man. Uh, interesting. You know, it's yeah. funny, like, 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 I don't, I'm going to sound like an asshole or super arrogant. I read, what do you think of Ted Williams now? Not intimidated. Right. I read Frank Sinatra has a cold, not intimidated. I read Falling Man and want to go in a closet and cry. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. I mean, it, like, it's a, it's just a different level. And I, sometimes I wonder if all of my newspaper training has deeply buried certain sort of 
internal governors or bad habits that I don't even know that I have that are the thing between me and being able to do following me. Right. You know what I mean? Uh, I don't, you know, I'm not nearly as good in a locker room or a clubhouse as a lot of people. Like my friend Seth Wickersham, mm-hmm. who's just, you know, he can do the, anyway, like there are things I'd like to be better at. Uh, you know, I, uh, you know, there's a John Jeremiah Sullivan Axel Rose profile that is just, you know, I'd like to be able to do that. Right. So I don't know. I mean, I read a lot and there are things that I feel very confident in and there are things that, you know, are still out there. I don't know. Maybe, you know, maybe I just keep moving a bar, but like, it's just, I don't know. Like I, I'm just not nearly there yet. You know, what's funny is I don't know if you feel this way or not. John Wertheim and I, do you know John Wertheim at all over at us? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I know who he is, obviously. Yeah, he's great. And he, uh, we've had this talk because we've, we're like, we're guys who came up and we would read through the old Sports Illustrated and you'd be at SI. And yeah, right. And, you know, I think the writing is, is like, there's some really, I don't like judging, right? Like, but there's some really bad old, like when people are like, oh, I long for the days of the 60s. Like, I kind of think like movies, I think generally the writing is sharper now. It's more uh, probing now. I don't, I just, I read old profiles, and I'm I'm kind of like you. I'm not intimidated by reading a 1968 Sports Illustrated. I'm more intimidated reading an Esquire in 2017. Although I'll tell you though, I mean, some of that is is the dialogue better in no? Is the dialogue better in? Oh, what's the Cohen remake of the John Wayne movie? What is it? Rooster uh, Cogburn? What is it? Yeah. Uh, what's that movie? You know, I know what I'm talking about? about? I do know what you're talking about. So is that dialogue sharper than say? Sam Peckinpah's The Wild Bunch? Yes. Is it as good a movie? Absolutely not. So, and like the other thing is, there is an SI where they had, you know, now you have writers and beat writers. They had fucking Bill Knack doing horse racing, Mark yeah. Cram doing boxing, Rick Tellender doing football. Yeah. You had people who knew their beats and could write the stories. And I don't know when those two things. I mean, imagine if you had a combination of Adam Schefter and Lee Jenkins covering the NFL. Right. That's what every beat was. So like that SI, that SI is stupid good to me. Yeah, that's a good point. Like that 70s SI, Roy Blunt Jr. SI. Yeah. To me, that's better than the 60s. That's to me better than the Jenkins, Bud Shrake SI. Yeah. Bill Knack, to me, Bill Knack goes down as, uh, in my, from he's, my I'm, he's the most underrated. People don't talk about oh, him and I don't understand. He, it. Dude, he's, I mean, he's my favorite. Yeah. Do you know what he's doing now? He sent me this thing where he and his wife are retired and they're in some sort of, I'm going to mess this up, but they're in some sort of like essay writing club where people, it's like a book club, but you write personal essays and show up. Can you imagine being the poor fucking retired (laughs) ex-manager of sales for fucking some Midwestern supply, industrial supply company, and you're down there in Florida and you meet up with your little people and you hand your little things around and then Bill Knack hands you a story about his first Kentucky Derby. And you're like... Who is you? Oh, that's William Knack from Sports Illustrated. Oh, <laughs> and he's like the gunslinger who hung up his guns, but like they're still in there somewhere. It's like William Money out yeah. of Missouri. Do you know what I mean? Like, of course. I mean Bill Knack. I mean I've read that thing, and like honestly, no offense to John or Chris, that'd have been the best thing Sports Illustrated ran last year. Yeah. And it's Bill Knack writing for his essay club, and right. I was just like, that's that's what I want to be. Yeah, you know what I mean. I do. Well, you know, Dave Kindred right now is covering girls' high school basketball. And posting on the team's website, you know, like I love it. these guys, are, I love it too. And he's just passionate about it. And he does it because he enjoys it, which I think is yeah. the best. 
I mean, like, you think about it, like, yeah, that's what I mean. Like, and they have no idea that it's Dave Kindred. Right. Do you know what I mean? Right. Like, anyway, I just love that because it's like, yeah. you know, people, I don't know. I love that stuff. See, I love that. I mean, Bill Max, my, you know, anyway, he's unbelievable. Yeah, he's great. I, he's great. He's such a nice guy, too. Like, a very nice, nice guy. Being. Yeah, he, he's like, he's Bill Knack, and he doesn't realize he's Bill Knack, which is the best part of it all, you know? Oh, and, yeah. Um, you, um, one thing I try teaching my students, and I fail all the time, I just can't, I cannot teach it, is this idea of the writer as a narrator. And I was reading um, one, of, one, of, one of the stories I really, really enjoyed that you wrote is uh, Shadow Boxing, about tracking down the one guy, Jim Robinson, who uh, fought yeah. Muhammad Ali in Miami in 1961, and no one could find him. And uh, you wrote, you wrote uh, we all live parallel lives on paper. Long after we're gone, the details of our existence will remain part of the public record. In time, they will be all that's known about us, a skeleton of facts, the human-wise long decayed. Um, I'm always trying to tell my students how to put their voice in a story without the reader saying, oh, this is Ray Thompson telling me something, you know, like, exactly. and it's really, really hard. So you can't teach that. No, you just have to, you have to try and fail at it over and over and over again. The benefit of working at small newspapers before you sort of arrive on quote unquote, the big time or whatever, you know, is Mm -hmm. that you get to make a lot of low cost mistakes and try things and so you know it, it, it's just interesting to me i mean that you know you write if you're going to end up writing stories with that sort of where you're the ombudsman for the reader you have to fail at it a lot and do you feel I like think. you did yeah yeah i mean like we were always trying crazy weird shit and in hindsight and we're like oh that's you know probably shouldn't have probably shouldn't have done that you know yeah that's, really, uh, that's funny um, uh but like i don't know like i i think that's all part of it i mean like when i talk to college students i'm like look you just need to write a lot and in 10 years you won't remember any of these stories and if you do remember them it'll be because you're embarrassed at how good you thought they were so just put your head down and grind like the difference to me when i look around at sort of and it's probably the same for you like who makes it and who doesn't make it it's never the best writer in the room. I mean, it's, it's like, who wants it the most? I mean, this is a craft, not an art. We're building fucking tables, you know? Right. right. I always say, I actually always say to my students, I always say this, like you'll, you'll say to a classroom who wants to be a writer and you'll get whatever 15 hands up and you'll say, well, who would be willing to move to Anchorage to cover whatever for the local newspaper out of college for $26,000. And all of a sudden you have two hands up. And I always think like, those are the two people who have the best shot of making it. Not the two oh, I'd have done ones. that in a second. Me too, of course, of course, um, of course. I always tell. I actually always tell the story when I was um, a young writer at the Tennessean. I covered a, a prostitution sting, and there was a guy who was arrested for. Uh, he he offered forty bucks for oral sex, and the lead on my story was all Jim Bob wanted was a blowjob, and the lead <laughs> never ran. And my editor was like, "Oh, come on, seriously," but I I want the guy who writes that lead. I'm not, I don't mean that as a self compliment. I even mean, I say that to my students. I want the guy who's going to try the lead and it's going to be laughed at and failed at, you know, it's going to be a failure. But if that, that would have been a legend if that would have run. Yes. Right. Oh my God. Cause like, you know, honestly, all Jim Bob wanted was a blowjob. Right. Exactly. All he wanted <laughs> was a blowjob. It's basic. It's basic language. There are no adjectives there. It says he wanted a blowjob. Yeah. You know, just like it's been a long day for Jim Bob. <laughs> That's funny, man. You need a blowjob. You need a blowjob. Um, 
You um that that Jim Robinson story was fascinating, and you worked on it forever. So this is Jim Robinson. He fought, lost Muhammad Ali in 1961. You're looking for him. You're looking for him. And the funny thing is, you never found him. And no, I wonder you the whole story. And you devoted so much time. You said you started on the idea of it when you were in Kansas City, not even when you were with. I uh, did. And when you don't find him, is there a part of you that's like, "Fuck, this isn't a story." No, I never thought it wasn't a story. Uh, I mean, because it was never, it was always, what does it mean to exist? You know, it was always about that. So I, I wasn't really concerned. I will say, I, I came real close. I, it felt close enough that I thought, like, I would wake up some days and be like, today's the day I find him. Because it was, the, you know what I mean? Like, I'd found so many people who knew him. Mm-hmm. And I was convinced after it ran that I would find him. And never did. Were you nervous I, that you would find him after it ran? Like, was that no, a concern? Like, uh, that no, was out. No, no. I mean, then you go do it like. I'm a big believer. Like, people are always like, "This is good for the story. This is bad. It, nothing is good or bad for a story. It's just what happened, and your job is to get it." So, like, I, I've never sort of bought into that idea. Like, if we find him, it's awesome. You know what I mean? Like, like one, he gets this last little flicker of recognition at the end of what's been a very hard life. Two, it makes me feel better because I spent all this time. I'd at least like to meet the guy. Right. No, so like, I, I, I'm sort of a big believer in like. Like, like, I had two versions of that Indian story that uh, I filed both of them last week. It was Cleveland wins, Cleveland loses. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I was like, you know, what's better for the story? I'm like, nothing. Whatever happens is the thing that happened. Right. You know? Right. So anyway, I've just never, anyway, that's what I think. I do think you go, in, if you go into a story rooting for an outcome. You'll, you'll find the outcome. Right. You'll find the outcome. Or you'll have your heart broken or you will... Actually, less likely than having your heart broken and less likely than finding the outcome is not seeing the beauty that's actually there and missing it. Right. That happens a lot. All right. So let me ask you this. I have not read your Indian story yet. Uh, I must confess. I'm glad you told but, me it's up today. Well, you said it just went up. Um, yeah. You go into a story. They assign you a story. They, do they just give you a broad write about the Indians? No. I mean, what happened is that I think this is what happened. The Giants were, I mean, the Dodgers were going to be on the cover of the MLB postseason preview. Mm-hmm. And then they started losing and losing and losing and losing. I was in a city near Cleveland for another story, like how intentionally vague that was. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and somebody was like, writes within three hours. And so they were like, just, can you, just cancel your flight, get in the car, go to Cleveland, figure it out. That was it. That was it. No, go right. We need, yeah, we need a magazine story on the Cleveland Indians winning streak, which we don't know whether it might end tonight. So I just showed up with, and then I had no access. I mean, I had 20 minutes with Tito Francona, and then I did everything else at people's lockers. And how do you, you say you are not, you don't think like you compared yourself to Seth? You don't work a locker room that he well. He doesn't. He, he's, he's, it's a, it's a thing to watch. Yeah. I always felt that way with Verducci, the same thing. I'd watch Verducci just hover oh, around it's the like, room. Oh, like I had this moment where I was like, you know what baseball's real problem is? I was looking around the clubhouse, and I'm like, far and away, the most famous person in this room is Buster Olney. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. by an order of magnitude. And I was like, that's a real problem. Right. That's really funny. So uh, did you, like, so how did you, I don't know, like, what are you looking for? Like, specifically, what are you looking for? when you're in that locker room working on, uh, on a story on a team you probably don't even know that well or know that much about. No, I was Googling them in my hotel in this other city before I drove over there. <laughs> I'd never heard of any of them. I'd heard of 
Kluber and I'd heard of Andrew Miller. Yeah. I think, and Tito Francona, I think maybe, maybe, I don't know, but maybe a couple of other ones, but I think that's it. And so you read a lot. Uh, I'm just looking for some idea that is interesting to me. That's it. And so the thing that I immediately was most intrigued by is these dudes have to live shoulder to shoulder for 183 days. And you know, this, a baseball clubhouse has nothing in common with the NFL locker room. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's much more than a place to get undressed and then dressed. And in some ways, the grind itself is the most difficult part of a major league season and dealing with the monotony and the boredom and the stress and the anxiety that fosters in those moments of boredom and monotony. And like how you manage that determines whether or not your team will be successful. That's why I've always rolled my eyes when people are like, steroids don't help you hit a baseball. You straw man, dumbass. Like, no, but they sure as hell help you hit a baseball in September. Right. When you played 15 games in a row on the road. You right. know what I mean? Like, Of course. And so, anyway, that's, I, I like subcultures, as we all do. And I'd never written and couldn't remember reading a story that was about sort of the clubhouse culture as one of the single most important factors in the success or failure of a team. So I was like, I'm just going to write about the Indians clubhouse, like as a country, as a nation state, you know, I mean, I would never use those words, but like, that was the idea. But how do you, so how do you, you know, nothing about the Indians. You don't know any of these guys. You've heard of Terry Francona, Andrew Miller, Corey Kluber. How do you break through? How do you get these guys or do you need to, to get them to trust you? Does that matter? Is that an overstated word right there? Yeah, because I'm not asking. You're talking about things they want to talk about. I mean, you're just, you know, tell me how you pack for 11-day road trip. Tell me your favorite things about the clubhouse. They're so happy you're not asking about the winning streak that it's just fun. You just need to – you need to really think every time before you walk in that clubhouse, have a certain number – have a certain amount of time, and every day there's a certain amount of stuff I need to learn or know. Or I heard it yesterday and didn't realize – that it was important until I walked out of the room and was like, shit. So that's top on the list. Got to go back after the game tonight and try to get it or tomorrow. You know, they don't, you know, they don't like feature questions post game. Right. They never and do. so when, you know, I don't really blame them. You know, I was here all day. Like, you know what I mean? A lack of planning on your part does not constitute an emotion, you know, an emergency for me. Right. And so, uh, so there, there's that. And, uh, I don't know. I mean, so I, I mean, I think that's mostly it. I mean, it's, it's figuring out the idea and then being ruthless in the pursuit of it without reporting to the idea and just trusting that it'll work and not just sort of have an omnibus notebook. Interesting. Can you, um, I mean, I always found major league baseball players, uh, pretty single-minded. They love to, you know, hit the ball, run to the base, um, sort of a basic template. It's the least sophisticated intellectually, at least sophisticated locker room clubhouse in sports intellectually by an order of magnitude. Oh, so do you find that? Do you just do you have to accept that, or do you try to crack, crack the nut? It's it's not always true. I mean, the Indians have a lot. Andrew Miller really smart. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Corey Kluber smart. Uh, Cody Allen, Joe Smith articulate and smart. Trevor Bauer is one of the five smartest people I've ever met. I mean, Trevor Bauer is like, I mean, I think he's so smart he struggles to talk to people. I mean, that's not fair, really, because I've talked to him for 20 minutes and offered an amateur diagnosis. But the guy is, an, is absolutely a genius. Right. Interesting. 
Um, I always found baseball difficult because, number one, there's always someone standing right around over your shoulder waiting to ask him about that double play against the Mets last night. Um, there's, a, there's a peer pressure, unspoken peer pressure in locker rooms. Um, I used to find a, a real antagonism toward the media, but maybe you didn't find that with Cleveland. Or maybe you don't find that in baseball. Maybe that's my imagination. Well, I mean, I imagine it depends on, you know, I think that rises and falls. Mm-hmm. I think there's a distrust of everyone who isn't in their bubble because baseball is so sophisticated and the preparation work they do is so detailed and, you know, they really work hard at their craft and no one who covers them understands the craft. Right. They never get asked about the things they actually did. You know what I mean? Right. It's all, by the way, I, didn't, I hadn't been in a, in a clubhouse in a long, long time in the, how impressed are you with is the new can you just talk about? Yes. Yes. I didn't know that was the thing. That's worse than can you talk about. We're devolving. Yeah, we really are. So, like, that's the other thing. I think that they have this craft that is a life's work by every definition, and they never get to explain it to people because nobody – that's not true. Some people know exactly what's going on. Many people who are there every day don't know what they're watching. Right. Do you feel like you do? Yeah, I was going to say. No, shit, no. No, absolutely not. Right. Right. Um, I think one thing that's fascinating that you mentioned is you have – so I live in Southern California where you have parents stuffing all their disposable income in the idea that one day their kids are going to be major leaguers. And I just think the – well, no, of course they're not. But also, like, I would take my life over a major league baseball player's life any day of the week. I find the monotony, the repetition – the travel, I, it does not seem like as nearly as fun in existence as one would think. No, I mean, you, the only thing there is the money. And by the way, though, I mean, they, a lot of them feel about baseball the way you feel about writing. Right, that is true. And so, I mean, I like doing the stories. I, you know, it's like I have a friend who's in a rock and roll band. It was like we play for free and get paid to travel. Right. And, I mean, there's something to that. I won't name him because uh, he has the greatest hotel alias that I've ever heard. (laughs) It is unbelievable. And it is the greatest subtle Tiger Woods reference I've ever heard. When he checks into a hotel, the name he uses is Orlando Perkins. (laughs) Uh, That is uh, first time he told me that I almost died. I was like, are you joking? That's really, really good. That's yeah, real good. Before that, it was Kanye Twitty. Oh, my God. Which is also good. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Um, that's funny. He should write a song called Orlando Perkins at the end of his... Uh, he really should. Yeah. Um, do you worry about guys, you know, going back a little bit to the Jordan thing, part, part of your Jordan story, you wrote um, you wrote uh, that he can, be, uh, he can be a breathtaking asshole, self-centered, bullying, and cruel. Do you, do you ever worry when a story's about to come out that some guy is going to just call and completely unload on you. And has that happened? Uh, yes, uh, for sure. Uh, it has happened. And no, I mean, you know, you don't want to mess something up. I'm always worried that like, you know what I mean? You know, from something simple to like, I misspelled his mom's name or like, you know, I, anyway, the, the ESPN magazine fact checking department are my favorite human beings on the planet. Right. Cause they've caught some real dumb shit. I did, yeah. you know? Yeah. And like, and you're writing them, they're that long, and they're that, you're writing them often very quickly. And so they catch stuff. God bless them. Uh, look, the hardest thing in the world, I mean, I'm stealing this directly from Tom, you know, 
the hardest thing in the world is to tell the truth about somebody, mm-hmm. despite all of the things sort of conspiring to keep you from doing so. And like, ultimately, our obligation is, it's not even to readers or to Michael Jordan, it is to the idea that, that you want to do this well and do it the right way. And, and that has its own obligation. You know, I mean, if you care about the craft, you can't be a kiss ass just to keep from getting yelled at. You have to t- tell the truth. Right. And I feel very str- strongly about that. Cause like, I'm not, you know, I'm not the best writer. I'm certainly not the best r- reporter. I do find myself relentlessly sort of trying to drill through layers of bullshit to get to whatever the essential thing is. And maybe that's it. Maybe that's like, that's actually very, maybe that's the difference. Like, the ability uh, to see bullshit and to then and, dig past it. When also, I'm not trying to be their buddy. Right. You know, I don't want, I don't, I have had no relationship with Michael Jordan and I don't have one with him now. Right. He doesn't want, he's not looking for friends. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want to hang out with Michael Jordan. I couldn't afford to hang out with Michael Jordan. Right. <laughs> you know, my share of the gas in the plane, we'd have to, you know, sell our house. And right. so, Anyway, I don't know. I find that that, by the way, that that gets easier with time. There's a difference between 22 writing about the starting quarterback in Kansas City for the Kansas City newspaper and then me now. Oh, like, huge. You know, huge. Huge difference. Huge. And, like, you used to be – everybody wants to be liked. I mean, it's just, you know, it's, like, down in our tribal DNA, you know? And so, I mean, it, it, I think it, only with repetition do you realize that because the first time somebody gets mad at you, usually when a human being is mad, they're at least a little bit right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And then you realize that, no, no, you're just writing about people who live in such a bubble that they don't know what's real. And what, like it, 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 you have to realize that, oh, people who are angry are lying. I mean, I got screamed at by the University of Miami SID. I was writing some story about a University of Miami football player who I don't remember now. And... uh there was a quote from Randy Shannon in there talking about this player needed to get out of Miami and go to Michigan or somewhere and get away from his quote unquote homeboys. Mm -hmm. So they called me, I was on the road doing another story. They called and were like, you made that quote up. Randy Shannon has never said the word homeboys in his life. Like crazy shit. Like Donna Shalala is going to call like, you know what I mean? Like, you made that quote up and they were so adamant that I was freaking out. And then when I got back to my hotel, I had the tape and I played it, and he said homeboy twice in 13 seconds. And so I just recorded the tape and sent it to him and then never heard from him again. Yeah. You just realize you were dealing with self-interested liars. Right. And so, and so, you know, every time a coach or an athlete's like, you know, why do you keep asking these questions about me taking this other job? Well, it's because nearly every single person who's ever had your job has lied. So your problem's with them, not with me. If all you guys would have told the truth, then we would just ask you once. <laughs> Do you presume, do you go into something presuming people will lie to you? No. Yeah. I just try to go into it clean. I just want to go and, you know, there's a great, Gary Smith said one time, you know, every story is basically the same. Like, what is the central complication of someone's life and how on a daily basis do they go about solving it? Right. I want to know that. Right. That's really interesting. And often there's a huge gulf between the stories, the story people tell themselves about themselves and a story that someone just dealing with that skeleton of facts and ones and zeros we talked about with Jimmy Robinson mm-hmm. would tell. And often the most interesting thing lies in the distance between those two things. Just because they're saying something doesn't mean that it's a lie to them. 
Right. You know what I mean? Like it just, you, I want to know the space in between sort of the, the timeline of events and the story they tell themselves about themselves. Cause odds are the truth is somewhere connected in the middle. Interesting. Interesting. Do you ever, um, one thing I do worry about, or I think about all the time is, uh, I mean, just an example, I wrote a book about Walter Payton and yes. my kind of philosophy is when you write a biography on someone, you're all in and it's not, you're not glorifying and you're not damning. You're trying to find out who this person is. And, you find out something, for example, Walter Payton had an out-of-wedlock child who he didn't really take care of. You know, he sent money, but he had no emotional relationship with. Um, and you write about this because you're writing a biography and it's definitive and he's a historical figure and blah, 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 blah. And then people say, why the fuck did you write that? And what good does that do to humanity? And my argument is, well, you're writing a biography. It's definitive from Abe Lincoln to JFK to Malcolm X. Biographies are definitive. There's blah, 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 blah. And sometimes I do feel like, no, what good am I actually doing? You know, look, he's a famous guy. He didn't want somebody to write about his out-of-wedlock kid. Don't have an out-of-wedlock kid. True. But I'm saying, do you ever think to yourself, what oh, yeah, I, like, we, what, like, what, yes, yeah. What I mean, am I doing here? Like, what am I yeah, doing here? Yes, no, I've absolutely thought that. Uh, so what are you doing here? <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, you hope at the end of the day, that you, well, there's that great East of Eden thing uh, where I think it's Hamilton and uh, Adam Trask and then the, the Chinese guy who works for Trask are all talking about how the only true story is about the hearer, about the listener. And like ultimately what you hope you're doing in the writing of these stories is to every time plug in maybe just a little to some sort of essential element of our common humanity like what it means to get old what it means to be lonely what it means to exist what it means to belong you know what it means to strive to want to dream to fail like I, I think that if you're doing it right you are showing you know like there, there's there's that tv thing where people want to do like the one-legged boxer mm -hmm. you know and I, I just couldn't give a shit about the freak show i want to know the you know, the pieces of shared human common humanity within people who do extraordinary things. Right. Yeah, that's well said. Uh, let me ask you a final thing. It's uh, June 22nd, 1996, the Clarksdale Press Register, Clarksdale, Mississippi. Yes. <laughs> Penny Mayfield byline. Oh, yeah, Penny. Oh, dude, that's, that's great. Right. Wright Thompson aims at writing career with $40,000 U of Missouri scholarship. Um. To the recent high school graduate, the, capital T-H-E, all caps, ideal job for him would be writing for Rolling Stone magazine. Um, so have you failed? <laughs> totally. Huge yeah. failure. Although my writing career might outlast Rolling Stone. Uh, well, I was going to ask you about that, actually. We just, uh, I think yesterday or two days ago, Jan Winner uh, selling yeah. a magazine. Does that, as a, as a kid who grew up loving, dreaming it's a, Rolling it's, Stone? It's, it, it's a huge bummer. I mean, honestly, I mean... God, I don't want to, you know, at some point in my career, for instance, I really want to have written for Sports Illustrated. Mm. You know, it's like, you know, if you like my group of friends, we read, every, you know what I mean? Like we read back issues. We'd sit in the library and read it. Yeah. Like, I mean, just obsessed with it. And I also feel sort of that way by Rolling Stone. I mean, there's a group of, of magazines, Esquire, Rolling Stone, uh, Sports Illustrated, uh, you know, that are just, they invented this thing, you know, and 
Willie Morris's Harper's, which doesn't exist anymore. But like the places that like there was this mi- minor, totally insignificant art form or craft that very few people still give a shit about doing the right way. But those are the people who invented it. And so I have a great deal of reverence for, for that. Yeah, I do too. I want to thank today's guest, Wright Thompson, for joining me on Two Writers Slinging Yang. You can follow Wright. Well, actually, you can't really follow Wright. He doesn't do social media, which I admire. But you can listen to Two Writers Slinging Yang on both iTunes and Bumpers.fm. Reviews are always appreciated. Really, they're needed. The music is from the great MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep writing.